Okay, questions from this morning's passage? Or given how lively our discussion was last week, last week's one of the few weeks where the ABF downloads are higher than the sermon because <laughs> it was, we, were, we were bouncing around. It was, it was a good discussion, man. Well, it's right there on the pod, It's right there on the website or the podcast. You can check it out. Yeah, yeah. Okay. You can be one of the 20 people who subscribe. Be good times. Jacob, microphone. Do we have a microphone here? Yep. Oh. Sorry, I was looking at my notes and I couldn't find. Um, you made reference to, um, I believe, Jesus' disciples were baptizing. At four, four, two. Four, two but not Jesus himself. Yeah, he offers that clarification in chapter 4 verse 2. 4 verse 2. Okay, thank you. And could you 1 through 2 actually. Is yeah. there any significance to that that Jesus himself was not baptizing? Can you comment on that? Yeah, yes or no? I, my guess would be simply um, that because Jesus is so unique as the son of God, lest anybody put on airs and graces and say, well, I don't know about you. You're only baptized by John. I I was baptized by the son of God. Um, that my guess would be something like that. It's the same reason, I guess, why we don't know where the Ark of the Covenant is because people would be worshiping it. I mean, we remember what happened to the serpent Moses lifted on the pole. It became an idol later. Um, And so that'd be my guess. The the significance, John wants us to know Jesus himself wasn't baptizing anyone. Um, Maybe there were people running around. I mean, again, reverse engineering what's going on, you can go too far with it. it's possible there are people running around claiming they were baptized by Jesus. Why John offered that clarification? He, John wants us to know Jesus wasn't doing it. And the reason why John wants us to know that, there's a couple seem likely candidates, but, you know, we've got to be careful doing too much with it. But, yeah, yeah. But we know from 1 Corinthians that the cult of personality um, is rampant. And you've got, I'm a fall and I'm a... Peter, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Christ, you know, um, which is the super sanctimonious and holy group, you know, um, so, okay, yes, Linda, what, okay, so to follow that then, so then back in 326, I mean, it specifically says, the one you testified about, well, he is baptizing. Yeah. We, I think we recognize people can function by proxy all the time. Um, so when even what you just said, the governor took that thing out. The governor probably had a secretary and aide take it out. But if it's the governor's decision, you can rightly say the governor did it. Um, it it's, this is, this is uh, a normal use of language, that if somebody... If my employees or my servants or my disciples are acting at my behest, carrying out my will. So we recognize when someone hires a hitman, they're a murderer. I don't kill anybody. You set in motion the killing of somebody. So they're not doing it apart from Jesus' direction over it. Jesus is overseeing it. Jesus is theoretically, okay, you go out, it's your turn. You get the next shift to baptize. I mean, he's, he's running. This is according to his will. And they're doing it, fulfilling his will. So you can say he did it. That's, I think that's a normal enough use of language. Um, if you're stressed, it, okay. Well, I mean, it's just very specific. And if it was his people, his disciples, it seems like it would have been worded just a little bit differently, saying, you know, his people or something like that. But this is specifically saying the one you testified about, and John only testified about Jesus. Well, Jesus was baptizing. I mean, he was. He himself wasn't doing it, but he was baptizing. No? He was was in charge of, right? I mean, um, it's it's like if if I was in charge of... um, one of those vaccine tents, and I'm running it. I might not give a single shot to anybody, but like, you know, Jeremy's over there vaccinating people, you know, and yes, Serena. It's a fat baby. This morning, I sent one child to turn on the lights in the bedroom of the other children, and they were all mad at her until they came down, and I said, no, I sent her, and then they had to stop being mad because I was the one who turned on the lights. (laughs) We had this very conversation this morning. Well, if I, if I, if I, uh, if, 
if I asked Mandy to send an email for me, say, hey, Mandy, can you can you make sure Ryan knows about the uh, so with the upcoming new attendee fellowship? Hey, Mandy, can you make sure you send can you send the email and copy Ryan, copy the other people involved with the logistics and make sure they know if I later at the elder meeting said, yeah, I, I reached out and contacted Ryan this week. Mandy is my arms and legs as, as the secretary. I don't think anyone's going to bat an eyelash if they find out technically I didn't do it. I just had the secretary do it. I got it done. I, you know I mean? We recognize immediate and immediate causality. Um, and God can take credit for all sorts of things. He's not the immediate cause of. Just like any person in authority can, I think. Um, so when you read about, you know, Herod had John put to death. Well, he had people do it, but he did it. He put, he killed John, right? Well, no, he told people to kill John, but we recognize the agency. And so we can say he killed John. Yeah? Okay. Well, you, you given the clear, given, given the clarity of four, two, I'd be interested to know what alternative synthesis you propose. Okay. <laughs> oh, oh, snap. It just went, got real. Okay. Let's get ready to rumble. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Okay. Um, other questions? Am I the only one that I've, I've really seriously been all this week just chewing on the fact I had no category for Jesus camping out for days, weeks, months? Um, Presumably waiting for John the Baptist to be taken off, off the off the field, um, and just doing the same thing John's doing. Basically, um, there's I had never really considered that as a, a chunk of Jesus' ministry and time, but there it is. So, um, yes, Jeremy. Was it not also after this time where John? John was in prison when he sent word to Jesus asking him, are you really the Christ? Yes. That's sort of a, an odd timeline there, too, because yeah. here he uh, he appears to know clearly who Jesus yeah. is, and then he's he's questioning again. Right, right, right. Um, I think that just speaks to human weakness and frailty. Have you ever not been so convinced? You know, I remember when I was a new believer— I'd have periods like I'd go preach Christ to the gates of hell, and I'll do, you know. And other times you're depressed and you're discouraged. If you've been in, thrown in, p- part of this is the messianic expectation. They're expecting the Messiah to march on Rome. I mean, so when John's saying, "Are you the one?" Like, are you ever going to get around to marching on Rome? Because at this point, John seems to be thrown for loop when Jesus actually goes out of ascendancy into the public starting to shift on him. And so when John catches word that there's actually a growing, um, a growing opposition to Jesus and that Jesus isn't squashing it, but the opposition seems to be gaining ground, I, my thought is John's really confused. Throw in the fact that he's been in jail and he had a bad, he got in a funk, he had a bad day or two. Even when Jesus deals with him he, in Luke, he reaffirms the greatness of John. I mean, it, he, he makes pains to make... But this is a, a, a momentary or a temporary weakness in faith. And part of it's just the confusion of this is not what I expected the Messiah was going to do. The Messiah was going to come and he was going to march on Rome and he was going to set up a kingdom and Israel is going to be exalted. And, you know, like I wasn't expecting obviously to go in jail and now it looks like people are turning on him. Um, but he's human. I, the fact that he has that weakness later, we ought not to detract from what he's saying here. Like here he's, he is shining bright here. And it may also be, we know into the Old Covenant, God sent his Holy Spirit to empower people for ministry. So I could be reading into things here because he's filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. But once he's not doing that ministry anymore, he may not have as much, let's use the charismatic term, anointing. You know what I mean, you know, you get what I'm saying? Like while he's on the front, while he's on the stage, while he's a prophet in function doing his ministry, it may be that he has extra unction extra energy and insight and while he's in prison he doesn't have as much of that and so he's walking 
I'm guessing, but it seems consistent with the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit's coming and going from people to empower them for ministry. And then when that ministry's done, retracting. It's, the Holy Spirit is not a sign or seal of salvation. So David, Saul becomes king, he gets the Holy Spirit. Saul sins, the Spirit gets withdrawn, right? Um, and well, it, could, it also is a—I mean, I know that I do this, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. I tend to—for heroes of the Bible, you kind of put them on this, this other plane. You're like, uh, uh, surely John the Baptist didn't have moments of questioning, you know? Yes, he did, um, don't call me Shirley. Yeah. <laughs> you had— uh, you know, Jesus calling him the, the greatest man more, yeah. born among women. He talked to David, a man after my own heart. These are people who are flawed people. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that he's questioning later on doesn't necessarily mean that he doesn't believe it and know it now. Right. Or right. he's just having a, a, a I, moment I t- of doubt. I take comfort that the greatest man who ever lived had a, had a period of weakness and a period of doubt and a period of befuddlement. Like... That, that's more my experience. So I, I, I take comfort in that. You know, these, these are, these are f- fallible people. You're, no, you're absolutely right. Absolutely right. Okay. Sorry to go twice. Um, but is it, it is an amazing statement when we think about like in all of Scripture. I think it's in Luke, Luke 7 when he talks about no one greater than John, you know, had, John has been born, you know, that— that's an amazing statement, first of all, when you think about the enormity of Scripture and all the amazing heroes of the faith. Think about, like, Hebrews 11, the veritable hall of fame of faith that John is listed as, you know, the greatest. Maybe that is why it was so hard for some of his disciples to see him diminishing. Right. Um, it's, an, it's a remarkable statement. I just think it's amazing. I mean, amazing being listed that way, being spoken of that way as the greatest but but Jesus, we don't have time to go. But Jesus' reasoning for why John is so great is not linked to how faithful John was, what a man of faith he was. D. A. Carson makes this point. Jesus' argument for the greatness of John actually rests on a Christology. He goes gives the analogy. Carson speaking somewhere, and he says, "Let's imagine Jake introduces me before my Sunday morning sermon. You know, because we're really pompous." And he, You're hype man. He's my hype man. He's like. You know, the, the right honorable reverend and, you know, and I come out and I say, you know, thank you, everybody. Uh, I just want to let you know, Jake, Jacob Hopper is the greatest man on earth because he had the honor of introducing me. That's Jesus' argument for John's greatness. So it's not, he's not fundamental. I mean, I think John is shown to be, especially here, doggedly faithful while he's ministering. But the greatness isn't rest upon no one has had more trust than John. No one has been more obedient than John. It's no one has had a greater honor than, like I said this morning, ladies and gentlemen, the Messiah. I mean, that's the greatest honor. He gets to herald Christ. Yeah, 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 exactly. So John's greatness is based upon the function he serves and the honor afforded him. He is faithful, but it's not this is the most faithful man ever to live, therefore he's the greatest. It's this man has gotten the greatest honor ever. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's remarkable. Yeah, bear, bear that in mind as well. We think greatness, like, well, he must have been a great guy. Yeah. Which John would seem to be all in keeping with, yes. It's yes. amazing we have that same honor. Yes. Well, no, Jesus goes on to say the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. You and I have a greater honor than John the Baptist, according to... Go, turn me to Luke. I mean, I'm in a room filled with people greater than John. I think. So it's Luke um, 7, I think. Hold on. Yeah, Luke 7. Yeah. Luke seven, twenty-eight. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So, you and I are greater, and, and the logic is we have a greater honor than John does. Let me, let me show you what that looks like. Turn to 2 Corinthians 5. 
I mean, if, if we take Paul's language here seriously, it is jaw-dropping, the privilege we have. Well, first off, you and I are a temple of the Holy Spirit. God takes up his residence in us. That's That's just, I mean, we're so like, yeah, of course. But like an Israelite? That was just, wow. That's, but Second Corinthians chapter 5. Um, and I want to track it back to make it clear that Paul's not referring to his own privilege. He's talking about all believers. Okay? Um, verse 14. Let's start there. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Therefore, from now on, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. We used to have a human way of looking at Jesus. He was a Jewish criminal who was put to death. Now Paul doesn't think about him that way. Um, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. By the way, that misapplied verse it's a new way, when he says it's, everyone's a new creation, it's fundamentally, it's a new way of looking at life, a new way of thinking. This isn't about, like, renewing. It, it's about the transition from, I used to live and view life one way, and then everything changed, and everything else looks differently, and everything else I understand differently, and that's the sense in which he's saying he's a new creation, fundamentally. Um, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Verse 18, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Question. Any question whether that us in verse 18 is all believers? Anyone? You guys, would you agree with me? The us in 18 is a corporate us. Okay. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. If that's us is corporate, then the next us is too. And gave us all the ministry of reconciliation. Then he uses apposition and restates what that is. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us all, I'm just arguing that same us is still that same referent, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we all are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. You catch that? When you and I faithfully speak the gospel, when we faithfully present it, and we do it properly by virtue of his spirit indwelling us, by virtue of, of the ministry that we've been given, God is making his appeal through us, which is similar to Jesus was baptizing. No, I mean, get that. Like, God is talking through you. God can say he's appealing to your neighbor. The living God is appealing to his neighbor when you speak to him. It's crazy honor and privilege. I think that's the type of thing Paul, uh, um, Jesus is saying, saying the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. The, the, the privilege afforded new covenant believers who, who receive the Holy Spirit, who can appeal to people such that God is making his appeal to them, have an even greater honor and privilege than John the Baptist. So, yeah. Questions on any of that? Okay, back to John 3. Um, and and let, me, let me explain. I, I was struggling with this in the message, but... I don't, there's a spectrum of how bad, how unbelieving, how disgruntled John the Baptist's disciples are. And they could be on the more envious, bitter side. They definitely aren't happy about this. They're definitely offset by it. And reading John's reminders back to them, hey, you guys remember, I'm not, suggest they might have thought John was a bigger deal than he was. Suggest that they've not realized God's sovereign plan in all this and suggest that they aren't content with him being the ministry he was given. So I'm trying to, trying to place them with John's response to them. It's possible they really are upset and whiny, but I don't want to castigate and vilify them too much. But they definitely are, are not fans of what was going on. Um, and it's, it's confusing them, honestly. 
Yes, Don. Um, perhaps it, uh, I don't want to put them down either, but perhaps they realize if, if John's decreasing, that means they too are d- decreasing. Right. Um, just as, uh, sorry, slipped my mind. Well, really the picture, get back to the wedding picture. Imagine Abner someday in the future is the best man in someone's wedding. I've only ever been a pretty good man. I've never been the best man. Well, you wonder why the bride's marrying the groom if the best man's really... You think you'd have the groom and a pretty good guy, but it's whatever. Okay. Um, so, so imagine Abner's, in a couple of years, the best man for someone's wedding. And in walks the bridal party. And as Abner walks in and all eyes are on him, because at a certain point in the wedding, all eyes are on the attendants, right? And then... In marches the bride. See, the, uh, the Jewish picture would be the husband would go get the bride, but whatever. So the husband and the bride are now center. Everyone's looking at them. And imagine Serena and I are trying to draw attention to Abner. And we're like, you know, she, she's fighting with a little spotlight, trying to move it over to get on him. And we're trying to, like, no, 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 look, look doesn't he look sharp? Like, it's, it's comically absurd. And it's, I mean, maybe some terribly bad written comedy, you'd have some, you know, megalomaniac parent like that. But that's kind of how John's painting them. They're loyal to their master. They're loyal to their rabbi. And their rabbi is no longer in the spotlight. And they're not thrilled with it. And so by painting this picture of a wedding, it's like, no, there's a time in the wedding when everyone looks at the... I've had my kids be flower boys and girls before. You know, it's neat. And for a little bit, everyone's staring at them. They get a certain amount of attention. They get a certain amount of glory. They get a certain honor in, in functioning in the wedding. And then they're forgotten as the glory and splendor of the bride and groom consume everyone's attention. And that's as it should be. That's the way weddings go. That's what John is saying is going on. And so, yeah, you know, um, if it just be weird, like at the wedding reception. Yeah, my favorite part was that those groomsmen. Man, that groomsman was sharp looking. I mean, it's just, it's, yes, yes, Deb. Um, I was just reading this, and it says, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over pur- purification. What's the purification business all Okay, about? so purification, it, the word only occurs twice in John's gospel, here and in chapter 2. You remember the, the ten vats, stone vats, of, were water for purification? Cleansing. And so my best guess is, given the setup, so, so the way John presents this, before he tells us what's going to happen, the focus is clearly on John the Baptist. He gives us the context in 22 to 24, right? Hey, I just want to let you know, Jesus is over here, remaining with his disciples, baptizing. John's over here, baptizing. And in that context, it is, so my, my best guess, and I can't be certain, but I think the most natural way is the fact that you've got two authorized agents from God performing parallel ministries, duplicated ministries. As John presents them, they're doing the same thing. I'm not saying there aren't peculiarities to each of them, but as John describes them, he puts them in parallel terms. John is also baptizing, right? So here are these two people, and I think that sets up a situation where someone could be confused or ask questions. I mean, and I'm just guessing what they might be. So just saying, if a person wanted to get baptized, would it be better to go to John or should we go to Jesus? Who's got the better baptism? Or if, you, if John said Jesus is greater than he and Jesus is baptizing, then John, what are you still doing baptizing? You can, you can pack up shop and go home because, I mean, who knows? But the term cleansing would be a fair description of what baptism symbolizes. So my best guess, given the way John sets it up, and you can see how easily confusion, conflict could breed, something like that is going on. Because we know they go to him because of this conflict, and what they go to him about is Jesus. So, so to me, it's got to be something about John's baptism and Jesus, these two camps, which is how he sets it up. And because, um, verse 26, and they came to John and said to him. So he links it with this, con- something about this conflict with the Jew over purification leads him to go, go to John and say, hey, everyone's going to Jesus. So what could they be discussing with the Jew that would explain why they, that's what instigates them to go to Jesus? Something like that would be my best guess. Um, I, I don't think John ultimately cares or would have told us, but I think we can imagine enough likely scenarios of where there could be some conflict or some 
Yeah, you guys have got the, the second tier baptism. You know, your guys' baptism stinks. Oh, there's, there's stuff I don't understand. There's nothing I need to understand. John presents, the reason I titled it a context, context of controversy, this scenario, without a whole lot of like needing detail, I can imagine any number of ways some sort of dispute, some sort of controversies would come up. What John cares about is it leads them to complain or express their exasperation at Jesus' ascendancy and John's descendancy. This, is descendancy a word, mother? It's not. She usually gives me the list of words I make up when I go home. <laughs> what? No, she, no, she like, that wasn't a word. Okay. Oh, the one time I got her, I used the word moldering. And she thought I was confusing smolder and mold. Except it's a word. And I'm putting her in her car, and she says, Moldering's not a word. And I said, ah, yes, it is. <laughs> and uh, it is so rare that I... No, it is so... I can't spell. So in Scrabble, I'm constantly trying to put words I can't spell down. It's terrible. Scrabble is a terrible game for me. I could be a Scrabble coach. I'd be like, try that word, you know. But uh, somebody's getting their ears. But I only, I only, I only tell you that story because it's so rare that I win a grammar debate with my mother that I, I cherish and and hold on to the rare cases I do. Um, so, if I ever got he and him mixed up, I'd get mocked relentlessly. No, let me tell you. I can last thing. Love you, mom. If I ever said he or him wrong, so, so he is a subject pronoun and him is an object pronoun. So in the verb, if, if, if the pronoun is going to do, do the verb, you say he, he went to the store, or you'd say I gave him a dollar and he's receiving the action. So if I ever said like, you know, me and him went to the mall, my mother would go, him went to the mall, did he? <laughs> and then she'd follow it up and saying, him's done it. Him's done it good. <laughs> I have heard that hundreds of times. Okay. Oh, yeah. So now my kids hear it. It's a family tradition. It's relentlessly mocking bad grammar in my home. Um, so it's a kidder tradition. Okay, sorry. Sorry for that aside. What were we saying? <laughs> there you go. Well, like, she's got my little girl speaking in a British accent. They'll go to her door. Gran. <laughs> anyway, sorry, sorry. Okay, back to, back to John the Baptist in our text. We'll edit this out in the uh, before the podcast goes out. Okay. Any uh, any other any other thoughts or questions with this? Um. So so yeah, John's contentment. He's he's totally at peace with his calling and his job. Yes, Matt. So are his disciples that were they ever? not by John, but misled to believe maybe because it had been 400 years since God had sent somebody that their period of, Hey, we get to be this special disciple for longer than it, it, we haven't had it long enough. I think about it in today's terms for like an administration, mm. you, you know, your secretary of state today, but that's going to last four years or eight years. You know it's coming to end. It doesn't mean you got to like it. And they, it seems like they battle every time, you know. What but, did Warhol say? Everyone gets how many minutes of fame? Yeah, what if you want 16? Is that what you're saying? Like, right, yeah. I, I, I mean, I, want 20 I, I honestly fame. know this is going to end when the Messiah comes, but I'm just not ready for that yet. Hold off. It's, it's, it's possible. I don't think they couldn't have been misled because they, they notice again the emphasis on testimony. We're told that they tell John, the one you testified about. I mean, so in John's gospel, John, the te- and the word for testify in Greek is marturo, right? John gets martyred. I mean, I think that's probably where the term comes from. And so John is a witness. John is, he, he, the verb and the noun are simply marturo and, you know, martyron or whatever, and martyres. And so like a dozen times up to this point, John has been linked with that verb and noun. He's a witness. He witnessed. He was a witness. He was sent as a witness. He witnessed and not denied. The one you witnessed about, you bear me witness that I witnessed that. Okay, stacking up. So no, there's no possibility they were misled by John. Now it's possible when John, the gospel writer is writing, 
there are people who've been misled. One of the explanations for, like, seriously, John, we get it. Like, why are you hammering this so much? And because of Acts 19, turn to Acts 19. I'll show you. Um, there's some extant cult of John taking place in, uh, in Acts 19. Naturally enough, not, this not through necessarily wicked means, but there were people who, because remember, every three times a year, all the men in Israel had to go to Jerusalem for the feast. And so if John's in the wilderness on one of those routes, he's going to pick up people to and from Jerusalem, and maybe they spend a week there with him. Well, there might have been people who came to John, received his baptism, became his disciples, they followed his teaching, and then they went home. And they weren't there when Jesus showed up. And they weren't there when everything went down in Jerusalem, right? So there's perfectly natural explanation why you might have disciples of John, people who have received his te- as disciples, someone who sits under your teaching, recognizes you as a teacher. They've, they, John is a prophet. We're receiving his teaching and his instruction, who then went home. So it doesn't have to be some, like, evil thing. But in Acts 19... And they had no social media, so they didn't know any better. Right. They didn't have Twitter. <laughs> right. And it came to happen that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have, a, we have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they are baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. By the way, this is where rebaptism has a precedence in Scripture. You can tuck that one away. Um, the, the notion that, hey, if your baptism didn't take place at the right time, maybe you should consider getting rebaptized. Here, here's the biblical precedent for rebaptism. Well, not right time, right reason. For the right reason, yeah, yeah, right, no. Well, I'm, I'm just saying no. What? Well, they didn't, I think the point is we didn't know there's any promise. I think as Jews, they'd know the God's Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, but we did not know an association with this baptism, anything about the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So, so there is at least some guys in Ephesus who just, they, they were, and there's nothing to indicate that there's anything bad about them. The fact that they respond so immediately suggests, in fact, these guys are good. The, God sent a prophet. They encountered God's prophet. They responded in faith and obedience. They got baptized. They went home. And they didn't hear any more of the story till now. Well, who knows if there's more pockets like this. And again, I don't want to extrapolate too far. You could imagine some of these people potentially even resisting or legends starting. I don't know. John is hammering that John the Baptist never said, never, 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 never said that he was the Christ. And so as you try to guess why that might be, this backdrop might provide some explanation for why. I, I wouldn't want to get too dogmatic on why, but it is kind of just again and again and again and again. John wants to, John wants to make that point really clear. Um, so fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Any other thoughts? Tim? As I think about what you've shared here, both in the sermon and here, I think about my challenge because when I think about this I think John was so clear on he must increase and I must decrease in my sinful nature I want attention yeah. and I wonder if John's disciples struggled with that but nonetheless this is more about me it's like what can I do to not need the attention of people and it seems like John was so clear on who Jesus was that, you know, what, what helped John be so focused that I can do the same thing? Well, the, this, the, the, on the one hand, the answer is God and his grace. The other hand, what he says to his disciples, what he reminds them. So if, so if John is recognizing a weakness, an error, a misstep in his disciples, then his response to them is helping correct them. So that's, that's, I mean, you'll notice in my outline, up until point three, I'm just quoting the text. And once we get to point three, I'm, I'm summarizing it, because I'm, I'm now, here's the antidote. Everything else is just set up. It naturally flows. You follow how this could happen. And then point one, you got to remember everything you have, you have from God. And, that, and, and the guy next to you, everything he has, he has from God. You know, so if, if there's something I want I don't have, God's a portion. I mean, 
let me let me show you Paul. These are common New Testament truths. Go to First Corinthians. Um, or is this one Second Corinthians? Hold on. What do you have that you did not receive? Is that second? Okay. Have received. Hold on. He deals with this in both letters, but what the particular verse I'm looking at. What do you have? Okay, there we go. Um, second Corinthians. No. Um, first Corinthians 4. There it is. Beautiful. Okay, so let me walk you through some of this in Corinth. Corinth had this problem, and it wasn't the problem of the leaders. Here again, the temptation can be for the disciples of the leader. Um, you know, and, and this this is where loyalty to someone can sour and become something it shouldn't be. So all the way back, he sets this up in 1 Corinthians all the way back in um, 11 and 12 of chapter 1. Um, well, let me start in 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Pause. These are not doctrinal differences. Because if they were doctrinal differences, the I follow Christ team is right. And Paul is not privileging them against any of the others. He's just as much not a fan of the I'm of Christ group than he is the I'm of Peter group. These are, and what becomes clear in 1 Corinthians 1, 2, and 3 is these are cults of personality. This is ministry stuff. Apollos is really... It's gonna, all, these examples of Apollos, Paul, Cephas, and Christ are going to narrow down to Apollos and Paul. It's going to narrow down to them. And the clear distinction is Apollos is eloquent. He has Greek rhetoric ability. It's ministry style. It's not theology. So sometimes I've heard people say, you shouldn't say you're a Calvinist. Because to the degree, if I ever say, usually I'll just say I'm Calvinistic because I want people to ask questions, not think, well, no, because you say it to somebody, so you think God, do you think we shouldn't do missions and God hates everybody? Like, no, I don't think that. So, but I'll say I'm Calvinistic as a shorthand term, sure. But these are, these are not doctrinal differences. Don't take this and say, we shouldn't argue about doctrine because... Po-. No, that's not what's going on. Um, if this was doctrinal differences, the M of Christ group should be the right one, and everyone else should just go home. And it goes, is Christ divided? Jump ahead when he picks this back up again in... Um, in well, he, he's seeding he's it. The, the term he uses in... Uh, to describe Apollos' speech is Sophia Logos. Sophia is wisdom, and Logos is words, wise words. And it's clear as he moves through that Sophia Logos for Paul means something like eloquence or rhetoric. So he even says in verse 18, the word of the cross, verse 17, 117, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not worth words of eloquent wisdom, Sophia Logos, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Um, so he's he's makes that clear. Then he makes it clear as he reminds them of how he planted the church in chapter two. He didn't show up with Sophia Lagos there either. He actually was stuttering and tremoring and weak. Um, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing against you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in Sophia Lagos but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So, Hey guys, if you remember when I planted this church and you came to faith, it wasn't because I had this like alliterated eight point outline. It's the power of God. Um, then he gets on to verse chapter three and this, this whole theme of divisions, which is one of the major problems in the body. You've got, Divisions here, and then they're going to show up again with a spiritual one-upmanship in chapter 12 through 14, where you've got the, I'm of prophecy, and I'm of tongues, and, you know, and you've got the lame group, like, we have the gift of helps, and, you know, and, joke, sorry. No one, that's the gift no one wants. i got the gift of helps. Everyone wants the exciting, no, you're not with me? Sorry, okay. 
Oh, everyone likes the people that give selfies, but they want the daring, exciting, dashing gifts. Yeah. Um, okay. Jay Copper is the gift of truck, so as he reminds me. Um, when you need a truck, though, who do you call? That's right. Um, okay. Sorry. My attempts at humor are, are bad. But so he clearly picks this back up, starting in, starting in verse um, 3. For you are still in the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not in the flesh and behaving only in a human way? What do you mean, Paul? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another Apollos, are you not merely human? So here's his context. Paul, we're going to find out, planted the church, and his ministry style was not a lot of eloquent words. He's already said it was stammering, trembling. He's not a great public speaker. And Apollos, we know from Acts, is trained in rhetoric. He's powerful in his speech. And so Apollos has been the main teacher of the church at Corinth since Paul moved on. And there are some people that really dig the way Apollos works. And this is how subtly it can shift. And I'll, gi- I'll give my own, my own example of, of how, where I think I was guilty of this in my own life. You know, God gifts a body with multiple teachers, and you may find you gravitate and, and have an easier time listening to some than others. And there are some people that, man, Apollos' gift in rhetoric was really helpful. Grab their attention. He's captivating. He's, he's winsome. There's a, there's a popular word. Um, and when Paul would show up periodically, compared to Apollos, he's kind of a little cringe. You know, he, he doesn't speak like Apollos does. I mean, and, and so these people are starting to become factions. And, and so Paul goes into this for when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Slaves through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Apollos's rhetoric did not cause your salvation, is what Paul is saying, any more than his stammering did. I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. So then, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So Paul says there is a ground in which God's servants will be judged. It's their faithfulness. The fact that our church is growing is not some validation of mine or the elders' ministry. Any more than if the church were shrinking, it would condemn us. We're, we're judged on our faithfulness to the work given to us. God determines the results. Joel Olstein's church is big. I wouldn't view that as a commendation. And Noah was a preacher of righteousness for 120 years, took him to build the ark. And at most, he converted his kids and their wives. 128 years. I like that. Um, so you, you, you ought, it is, a, it is always an error to evaluate um, someone's faithfulness by the fruit of their ministry. Um, God could choose to bring to himself. I mean, Paul says there's some people preaching Christ out of envy and game. We read that earlier, right? Those people are not going to hear, well done, my faithful servant, even as God was pleased to save people through their ministry. Imagine that irony. Imagine Imagine preaching the gospel purely to stick it to Paul, God being pleased to bring people to salvation through that preaching, and yet you're not, good job. All right? God knows what they were doing, and they're going to get theirs. So Paul, Paul makes it clear. It is, it is valid to honor, I mean, because we're told, like in Thessalonians, honor such men. So let me, let me plug in how this applied to me. I was at Grace Community Church. John MacArthur is a great teacher. He's a great speaker. And I enjoy his teaching. He, I, when it, shortly after I got saved, I encountered his teaching, very helpful in forming my theology. And so it was a thrill to be at Grace Community Church. And I think it's right to honor men like John MacArthur for their faithfulness. You've been laboring in the Lord's vineyard faithfully for 40 years. That's awesome. And that is a right basis in which to give us honor. The wrong honor would be, you have saved so many people through your preaching. You've done over two... I should read the quote. How many, yeah, um, the, the consequence of your ministry, that's up to God. And so what I was finding is MacArthur would take a couple weeks off in the summer, about seven or eight weeks off in the summer, both to 
for vacation, to work on writing projects, and usually to speak at conferences. So at the end of the summer, MacArthur would be gone. And I found myself checking to see who was going to speak instead. And be one of the elders at Grace, usually. And there was one elder who had a southern accent who put me to sleep, and I was checking to see if he was going to speak. Godly, I have no complaint against this man's qualifications for ministry. No complaint against his integrity, his life, his teaching. No complaint against his conclusions. He just talks like this, and it was like, it was hard. And I realized when I was considering with my wife, maybe we should just go into work, because the way Grace worked is they had two services, and there'd be these fellowship groups, like what we're doing here, and they'd alternate. So our fellowship group met second hour, so we go to the big, we call it big church. We go to big church, and then we go to our fellowship group. Maybe we sleep in tomorrow, and we'll just go to our fellowship group. And, and what it came down to was, I've mistaken John MacArthur as what gives the increase. If the Holy Spirit has gifted this church with these elders, and they're qualified, who on earth am I to say? Actually, I'd rather be fed by a guy who's eloquent than a guy with a southern accent. The Israelites stood in on the Sinai Peninsula while Moses read the book of Deuteronomy at least. He read to them that says the law. Could have been all five books, at least the book of Deuteronomy. In the baking hot sun with no AC, with no seats, they stood while he read to them, and then the Levites gave a sense of the meaning. I'm sitting in an air-conditioned room in a comfy chair, and my big complaint is, but it takes more work for me to pay attention because I don't like a southern accent. I need to get over myself. And I had to repent of the fact that I was beginning down this path of factionism. I, great that, that you connect with one person's speaking ability more so than another. I mean, we just had, we've had Terry in here, and we've had... Um, Daniel preach, and we've had Jamie Cook preach, we've had Mitchell preach, and we've had Greg Rolak preach, and we've had a number of our guys here. And if, if, if you find some of those guys easier to listen to than others, praise God for that. And if you've got any actual complaints on what they're saying and how they're interpreting Scripture, that's legit. Like, bring that up. But otherwise, like, God's gifted the, this body with these people, and we ought not to mistake the, the danger is something like, well, when MacArthur gets in the pulpit, that's when people really grow. When this evangelist preaches the gospel, that's when people get saved. No, God gives the increase. And, 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 and the danger is to start concluding, man, if you want to see something happen, get that guy in the pulpit, get that guy. And that's contrary to Paul's whole point. And, and so in ministry, I don't want, I mean, this is why I talk about what people think of my sermon. Part of me wants to impress you. Part of me wants to hear that was power. No, I should get out of the way. I should want you to see God is big. That part of me, I think, is wicked. You know, that part of me that like is craving, like that was really good. It, it needs to be crucified and then stuck with a stick. You know, um, but it's it's there. I think Count. Z- I saw this shirt. Zitzendorf, preach Christ, be forgotten, and die. Am I mangling? Can someone with the internet look that up? Anyone? I'm mangling that quote. Um, I'm I'm mangling it, but like... Nicholas Zingendorf? Hold on. Somebody looking this up? We got like one minute left, so I'll look it up. Um, Count... No, 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 there's a value. I want to be faithful. I want to be clear. Like, I think if I'm speaking in an unintelligible way, if I'm using analogies that are unhelpful, like, that's all valid. I want to, do you find it? Yep. What, is, what is it? Preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. Preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. Count Zinzendorf. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I couldn't remember his name, so there you go. I'm just answering his prayer. Um, so no, 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 no. What I and, and I've had to learn. We got one minute. I've had to learn this too. There have been Sundays where I feel like all I was firing on all cylinders, and my outline was tight, and I'm thinking, man, I wish that guy who gave me a B in preaching lab could only hear me now. He'd give me an A. Yeah. Um, and there are Sundays where I'm like, I think like, man, and 
and there's crickets and there's sun Sundays where like I like barely got through it and like thank you Lord that I didn't like just run out of the pulpit and God chooses to give the increase so when I listen to my I usually listen to my sermons Monday or Tuesday I separate what God wants to do with it I'm going to be held responsible did I put the work in or was I being lazy was I diligent or was I faithful and I really only measure my sermons by two criteria. You use the sniper rifle analogy. Did I hit the target I was aiming for? What I wanted to communicate, did I communicate? And sometimes it's like, no, I wanted to get this point across, and I don't think I communicated that very clearly. I think that was unclear. I think I should have said more. Or, man, I really repeated that point three times too many, and it was getting redundant. You know, so the first question, did I accomplish what I wanted to accomplish? And sometimes like, oh, I wanted to make this other point and I forgot to. The only other thing I check it with is having listened to it now, would I alter where I aimed? And there's sometimes where after the fact, and that's what's really helpful for me, this ABF, where are you guys thinking, what are you guys struggling with? Is like, oh man, I did do what I set out to do, but I kind of now wish I'd aimed to do something different. That, that's the only, as I try to get better at communicating, did I accomplish what I wanted to accomplish? And would I still be, would I change what I did? And so I'm trying to refine what's unclear, what's unhelpful, jokes that are just bad, um, and, and things like that. But I don't, I, that's totally separate from what God, God used a talking donkey before. He can use me too, you know? And no matter how, and the danger would be when I, man, that was perfect. I got all my alliteration. I got my, pulled the perfect stories and I was in the zone and I was eloquent and God could have nothing happen as a result. So I'm going to be measured by being faithful. I'm not going to be measured by the results. And so the, the danger is to, to, look to my faith, look to the results as opposed to my faithfulness. It is entirely possible this church is growing and I'm being unfaithful. It's entirely possible this church is not growing and I'm being faithful. Those are, those are two separate things because God gives the increase. Um, and if we get that in mind, I, for me, I'm going to get out of the way and not think it's about me. You know? Uh, anyway. We're at time. Thank you very much. Godspeed. God bless. Good day.